Hey friends, Nels here. Thanks for tuning in to the Journey Church Podcast. Today we're in a message series called Parables, where we're looking at how Jesus used small stories to teach big ideas. Let's tune in to see how these parables can impact our lives. Uh, we're going to look at the parables. We've been doing that throughout the summer, and we get to look at one today that's uh, really one of, one of my favorite parables. In fact, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Scripture. It comes from Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start reading with verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Francis Schaeffer some years ago wrote a book, No Unimportant People. And this is a parable in which Jesus illustrates that value, both his value and the value of the kingdom, that there are no unimportant people. And in order to communicate that there are no unimportant people, one of the tools he uses is what I call an indiscriminate, an indiscriminate display of grace. When you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus walking through this earth and just spreading grace everywhere, spilling it out everywhere he's at, almost indiscriminate. Now let's have a look at what the what the context of this parable was. Jesus was hanging out, we're told in the previous verses, with tax collectors about the most disreputable occupation known to the Jew, tax collectors and sinners. Not sinners, sinners. I mean, the kind of thing where you'd snarl and turn up the corner of your... your uh, your mouth, and uh, tax collectors and sinners, and, and that he was actually hanging out with them and eating with them. It isn't just that he was gracious to them as he passed by. He was treating them like he was their friends, that they were buddies. Remember, the Bible says Jesus was numbered with the transgressors lest we forget whose side he's on. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. And in his, in his hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners, the Bible tells us that he had an audience, and the audience were the Pharisees. Now, we often speak of the Pharisees as really, we, we, we say that word almost like the Pharisees would say the word sinners. But actually, you'd have liked them as neighbors. They, were, they would have been good neighbors. They would have kept their house painted, their fences fixed. They would have uh, paid their bills. They wouldn't have had parties late at night. They, they would have been, they followed the law. They did what was right. And because they did what was right, they looked on these tax collectors and sinners and Jesus hanging out with them as really a, a not only despicable act, but an act that called into question who Jesus actually was. And what was so offensive 
was that Jesus was not showing favorites in this fallen world. He was indiscriminately scattering grace everywhere. And you don't have to actually look any further than the very first miracle he did. You'd think the first miracle that Jesus did, which was fundamentally the beginning of his earthly ministry, that, you know, you'd hear the crescendo in the background, the rising the rising uh, theme, and uh, it had let us know that something very uh, monumental was occurring. And in fact, Jesus is at a wedding reception. Not even the wedding itself. The wedding itself, the sacred moment, the two become one, the blessing of God. Uh, no, he was at the party afterwards. At the party afterwards, they ran out of wine. So we're talking about uh, Jesus becoming a caterer. His mother said, they're running out of wine. And mom is concerned because she knew what kind of embarrassment that would cause the hosts. So on the basis of the personal embarrassment of a wedding party that didn't plan well enough, Jesus does his first miracle and he turns water into wine. What in the world was he doing there? It was the indiscriminate display of grace. Just here it is. Yeah, you got a problem in this wedding reception? We'll just turn the water into wine and you'll have plenty of wine. But it doesn't stop there. There's 10 lepers. They come to Jesus. They're outcasts in the culture. Jesus heals all of them. The Bible tells us that only one even came back and asked for, uh, told them that he was sorry, that, that he was thankful. Jesus knew that only one was going to come back and say thank you. He healed them all anyway. Indiscriminate display of grace. The woman's caught in adultery. In that culture, she could be stoned. Jesus is pulled in because the Christian or the, the religious leaders want to use it as a trap. He stares down the leaders, they all melt away. Finally, Jesus says to the woman, in her disgrace, Where are your accusers? And he says, Well, they're all gone. Well, he says, I don't accuse you either, but, but don't do this again. And he lets her go. Surely, at least, he would have said, let's sit down and I'll take you through the four steps to peace with God. This ought to at least be a moment. No, he just, don't do this again. And when he's telling us the pinnacle, when the Bible's telling us the pinnacle of, of Christian achievement, it gives us this odd phrase, pure religion and undefiled is what? Daily intimacy with God where I hear his voice and walk in his will. It's pure religion and undefiled is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. Surely pure religion, surely that's a good thing, but pure religion is, is much loftier than that. To visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. What, what is all of that about? That's about Jesus saying, you can trust me. He's not just saying that. He knows he's come to a fallen world 
where all of us hear what the Bible says is the accuser of the brethren whispering in our ear and reminding us that we are not worthy. That because of this or that in our lives, we are disqualified. And in that spirit of disqualification and guilt, Jesus comes. And without requirement, without a list of things, he simply spills his grace out onto all of us. You know what the word grace means? It means favor. He spills out his grace, which is his unmerited favor, and his grace, which is his help in time of need, and he just gives it to us without asking anything back. Can that be? Well, it can be if I look at you with favor, if I have a predisposition of favor towards you. Now, I grew up in a church that faithfully taught the Word of God, and through it, I honor them by saying that I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I became a believer. I know if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. But nothing's ever quite that simple, is it? There was also a church in which it, the picture I had of God is someone who was always frowning because I had somehow failed him somewhere. And so being part of the church fellowship was as much a producer of guilt as sin was a producer of guilt. And it was a heavy burden. And so the scripture of Jesus, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your souls. I knew nothing of that kind of walk with Jesus. A yoke that is easy, a burden that is light, a soul that is in rest. But this parable talks to us about the indiscriminate display of grace of Jesus who was numbered with the transgressors saying, I'm with you. Now you and I have the temptation all through life for there to be important slash unimportant people. Certain people are important, certain people unimportant. And we, we're invited to align ourselves with Christ. Sometimes in some cultures, children are unimportant. Children were trying to get to Jesus and the disciples themselves were actually keeping, him away, keeping them away until Jesus turned around and said, allow the children to come to me for such is the kingdom of God. Or there's the unproductive. Unproductive people are people who don't behave in ways which validate our values. They're not productive. There are people who are underperformers. Ah, I go with the goers. I'm with the doers. I'm with the achievers. Yeah, I don't know. They're an underperformer. I like baseball, and 
So sometimes my wife Marcy and I will go to spring training. We were at Vero Beach, Florida a few years ago when uh, the Dodgers were still spring training in Vero Beach. And uh, we sat down. Here we're just a few seats over from Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda was the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers for many years. And uh, at one time in the Dodger history, they had a ball player named Daryl Strawberry. Tommy Lasorda said Daryl Strawberry had more natural talent than any ball player he had ever seen. Then he said, do you know the difference between Daryl Strawberry and a dog? He said, if you throw a ball, the dog will at least run after it. (laughs) Talk about a vote of no confidence. If you follow his life, he was constantly underperforming. You know, it's easy just to write us off, isn't it? But there have been seasons in my life when I've been an underperformer. Or the invisible. Now, whether someone's invisible or not is not based in the nature of the person. It's based in the nature of the person looking. And I can look at people in a way that certain categories of people become invisible to me. Some occupations seem invisible to me. They're just... Like, I, like, uh, I, like, I like British mysteries and stories, so I, like, I watch Downton Abbey. And, well, there's, a, there's an old... Uh, actually, won some Academy Awards, an old movie called Gosford Park in which a mystery, murder mystery, is set in, in an old house like Downton Abbey, one of the old great houses of England. And... Uh, in the course of the story, a man and woman who are part of the gentry, the wealthy, they're in this argument, and they, and they walk into this room, and suddenly the woman realizes that one of the servants is there, and, and she's going to stop the discussion, and the guy says, oh, it's nobody, just one of the servants. It's nobody, just one of the servants. Do we get somewhere in life where we actually have the capacity to say to, about someone, oh, it's nobody, it's just one of the... Jesus couldn't. And so this indiscriminate display of grace creates a problem. A father was watching television, he's watching the news, he saw unfolding all the catastrophes of recent days, he said in anguish, why doesn't somebody do something? His daughter was walking through the room and she said, Dad, nobody can care that much. See, God can love the whole world. I can't love the whole world. I don't have the capacity to love the whole world. God has the capacity to love the whole world. But if it's true that my values need to be that there's no unimportant person and I want to align myself with the indiscriminate display of grace, then what does this parable teach me? Teach me in it. It teaches me uh, at least three things. One is responsibility leads to care. Responsibility leads to care. When, uh, when Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king in Iran, which is Persia. And some refugees came through, and 
He asked how things were in the old country, meaning Jerusalem, and he, they said things are not well. The walls are torn down. The people are in disgrace. The Bible says that Nehemiah left the room. He began to weep. He tore his clothes. He was in absolute agony. He felt responsible, responsibility. He felt responsible for their care. My son, Nathan, and his wife, Laura, who teach in Beijing, China, been here for seven weeks. Today, they're leaving to return to China. They have two children. Camden is three, and uh, Katie's one. Now, I can't have many intelligent conversations with Camden and Katie. But yesterday, as they were packing, Marcy and I were watching them, and I was sitting out in a chair and they're playing out in the backyard and I felt respons- I feel responsible. It wasn't my choice to have them. I'm, I carry that in my... So I care for them. I care what happens to them. I care for their welfare. I care for their education. I care for their health. We invite the Lord. Lord, who do you want me to be responsible for? I, I'm obligated by Scripture to be responsible towards my wife, to love her and to care for her, my family. Scripture tells me I have a responsibility to my neighbor and he will help, the Lord will help me understand who my neighbor is if I ask him. He actually says I have a responsibility to my enemy. That I'm required to love my enemy. And as I allow God to develop responsibility towards people, my spirit of love and care will move towards that person. Because whoever we invest in, our heart will follow. By the way, that's how people fall in and out of love. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. When somebody falls out of love, that's not really a very big deal. The big deal is, do they have enough will within them to reinvest towards that person until their heart follows and they fall back into love? So I have a responsibility that leads to care. Here's another thing that comes from this parable about the lost sheep. Loss is not a matter of percentage, but relationship. You'd think 99% is a pretty good deal. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at. Grocery store, there's loss in the produce department. Um, Anywhere in life, there's just going to be some loss. I mean, he's still got 99 sheep. Safe. Why the fuss about the one? There's no fuss about the one unless you have a relationship with the one. And so I got 99 sheep, but the one, then... So Chuck Swindoll, a few years ago, was really one of the most influential pastors in the United States. Pastored a large church in Fullerton, California. He wrote dozens of books that just sold millions he was a conference speaker all over the United States, uh, was early part of the speaking uh, team for Promise Keepers. He was a man of enormous influence in the evangelical world. He was in a staff meeting one day, and he was looking a bit glum. And uh, one of his staff members asked him what was wrong, and Chuck Swindoll said, Well, a father is only as happy as his unhappiest child Father is only as happy as his unhappiest child. Well, four of them are doing great. The fact that one's headed down into shipwreck, you know, 80%. 
but our heart won't let us be that. Our heart won't let us be in a place where 40, 80% is fine because we have a relationship with the one. So loss is not a matter of percentage. It's a matter of relationship. And here's a third out of this uh, parable. Happiness is based on the well-being of the whole, not the one. Now, we'd actually think this parable teaches just the opposite. Hey, it's all about the one that's lost. But in fact, the, the basis of that is, no, this is our flock, and we are, not, we are not happy. We are not fulfilled if someone's not here. It's not about the one. It is about the one as part of the whole. And happiness is not based upon the one, but upon the well-being of the whole. So the Bible tells us about the story of the prodigal son where one of the sons wanted his money and took off to the far country and he spent it all and made a host of bad decisions and now destitute. He returns home. The Bible says his father, now an old man, sees him a long ways away and he runs to meet him. And just like this parable, he throws a big party. But he's got a brother and his brother... His, actually, his brother's me. His brother was highly responsible. He stayed at home. He worked the farm. He did what he was told to do. He took care of his father. The brother says, how about me? Now, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that stays home and takes care of my parents and takes care of my responsibilities. I've never not worked in my life. I'm a firstborn son. 70% about, of all lead pastors are firstborn sons. 19 of the 21st astronauts were firstborn sons. 90% of the fighter pilots in World War II were secondborn sons. <laughs> gives you a little idea of the difference. This is not a dialogue about right or wrong or good or bad traits. It's, it's the tendencies of our life. I, I'm the responsible one. And the responsible son said, but... The father is saying, listen, we're, we're, not, we're not whole without him. We're not whole without him. And that leads us to this. Where does the joy of the church come from? The primary goal of most organizations after, it has any, after they have any years at all is self-care. So churches get to where they play the music they play for the Christians and they preach the way they preach for the Christians and they have the classes they have for the Christians. But the joy of the church comes when the lost sheep crosses the line of faith and becomes found. And there is no activity in the church of Jesus Christ that can substitute for that reality. A few years ago, I was elected a conference superintendent, so I was, 
I was uh, an overseer over about 25 churches in Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming, down into New Mexico. A lot of traveling involved, but once in a while, then I just sat where you sat. I, I, we lived in Billings. I went to Faith Evangelical, and uh, when I wasn't on the road, I was just sitting, taking in a service. And I was enjoying that. Steve Strutz, who's now superintendent, was the pastor then. And uh, one Sunday, uh, they brought out a cow tank. They dressed it up with some felt, the cow tank. And they were going to have baptisms. And uh, they wanted people to give their testimony. And people, someone would write it down on a piece of paper. They weren't professional speakers. They would stand there in front of that audience so nervous that their hands would be shaking and that piece of paper would be crinkling. And with fear, they would read out that testimony and then they would be baptized. And after one of those services, I came up to Steve Strutz and I said, you know, well, good music here and good preaching. But I said, on the Sundays, there's a baptism. Out where I sit, it's electric. It is like the life of Jesus Christ alive. And so a few Sundays ago, when I sat where you're sitting, and I watched the testimonies of the people who later that day were going to go out to the river and be baptized, I remembered those services at Faith Evangelical and Billings. And I reminded myself again of why I am here and why I have been here for 10 years. I am here because this place has the courage to do much of what it does for the people who are not here. Not for the people like me who have been here all the time. That's where our joy comes from. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.